This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to the sixth season finale of Commentary Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today we're joined once again by Star Trek uh, writer and, and, and veteran Eric Stillwell. How's it going, Eric? <laughs> Fantastic. How are you guys? We're doing really well. Yeah, glad to have you back. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, so is so, this the episode where you leave me like almost dead at the end and it's a cliffhanger? <laughs> yeah, well, this is, let's see, the sixth season finale, so I think we're going to find your head like buried in oh, the that's 19th right. yeah, century Mark Twain. or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. We'll, we'll figure it out next season. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, we, we had you on a couple of times uh, about a month or so ago. Uh, ago to talk about uh, Michael Piller, but we figured we should have you back to talk about you and your work on Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, for those people who don't know, well, we'll get into it. We'll just, we'll just get into it and we'll, we'll start at the beginning okay. and, and, okay. and, and work our way through. So, okay, you, in a lot of ways, seem to have you know, lived the dream, so to speak, as far as fans are concerned. You, you, I, I, I get the impression that you're not someone who is just like, oh, yeah, Star Trek, that would be a fun place to work. Like, you were a super fan from way back, right? Way back. Was, I, I think I really became a fan, like, in the early 1970s when I was in grade school, and I, I had a friend who was a huge Trek fan, and um, my dad was in the Air Force and we moved around a lot. So I was living in Idaho. We were at Mountain Home Air Force Base. And, you know, most kids wanted to just get out of school and go bike riding and racing around the neighborhood. But he always wanted to go straight home and watch this show called Star Trek. So one day he convinced me to go in and watch it. And I was hooked from the very first episode. I think I was about 11 when it when I first saw it. So obviously we were already into the reruns, but... I was not really old enough to appreciate the original run of the series. I was like three when it started. So early 70s was when I really, you know, paid attention and fell in love with Star Trek. And then I was I was with him every day after school watching Star Trek. Well, one day we came home and uh, Star Trek wasn't on. It was like Perry Mason had replaced Star Trek reruns and, we were like, we were just horrified. So we started a, a petition and we got like 370 signatures and we mailed it up to the TV station in Boise demanding that they put Star Trek back on. <laughs> and uh, I got this really nice letter from the station manager and he sent some black and white PR photos of Shatner and Nimoy and promised us that as soon as, you know, a couple months would go by and Star Trek would be back. And it was. So that was the beginning of my Star Trek activism too. <laughs> so were you just like going door to door like asking people for signatures you know i i know we went to school and talked to neighbors and friends and ever anybody that we 
I don't remember if we went door to door, but we, we did collect about 370 some odd signatures wow. to, to put Star Trek back on. And, and little did you know, I guess, that you were carrying on the fine tradition of getting petitions <laughs> yeah. signed to keep Star Trek on the air. So I mean, I'm not wonderful. even sure at the time if we <laughs> were old enough to be cognizant that we were watching reruns <laughs> <laughs> of a show um, in the first place. But uh, we we were all huge fans. We used to build models and run around the neighborhood and pretend like one side of the street was the Klingon Empire and the other side was the Federation and the Romulans were over here and if you crossed the street you were in the neutral zone and we would do that for hours and hours and hours and hours. So, so at what point I mean was, was it was it your love of Star Trek that 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 made you want to get into the industry or I mean like how how did that come about did you want to work in television or did you want to work on Star Trek or or well, this is what's really interesting, and I was thinking about this today because I just started a permanent job at the Walt Disney Company, and of course they have the Star Wars franchise. And it reminded me that um, when I was young and I was a Star Trek fan, I wanted to work for NASA, and I wanted to be in the space program. And so I, I really sort of geared myself towards doing that, and um, by the time I got to high school, I actually got a nomination from Jimmy Carter to compete for an appointment to the Air Force Academy. Oh, wow! And oh. my my dad had been in the Air Force for 22 years, and but it turns out that if you're not very good at math or sports, <laughs> you can't go to the Air Force Academy. <laughs> and I have absolutely no sports or athletic aptitude at all so i was sort of crushed that my dreams of working for nasa were were not going to happen but when i was 15 that was the year star wars came out and it was star wars actually that made me think i, I mean the first five minutes of star wars were the, were the big imperial battle cruisers like coming across the planet chasing the Princess Leia's ship. That scene in that movie blew my mind at age 15. And that's when I thought, I, I'm going to go to Hollywood and like work in the movie business, right? So Star Trek, I always tell people, was, was a show that challenged my um, intellect and sort of informed my worldview. And Star Wars was what inspired me to work in Hollywood. But fortunately for me, um, when I was in high school, I, I also ran a Star Trek fan club called Starfleet, which you may have heard of because it's still going today. And apparently the Guinness Book of World Records has it listed as the world's largest sci-fi genre of fan club in the world. Oh, wow. And I was running that when I was in high school in the beginning of my college days. And because of that, I had um, correspondence and communication with Gene Roddenberry's office through Susan Sackett and some of the other, um, some of the actors on the show and stuff. So when I graduated from college and decided to go to Hollywood, I, I had those connections. But my first year in LA was back in 1985, right after I graduated from college. Um, the first year in LA was a disaster. I couldn't get a job for love nor money in the entertainment industry. 
and just every horrible bad thing happened. I, I got tickets, couldn't afford my rent, <laughs> couldn't afford to register my car, could barely afford to live in LA. So I went back to Oregon and I one day read in the newspaper that Warner Brothers was coming up to Oregon to film a, a Hallmark Hall of Fame TV movie. So I, I kept bugging and bugging and bugging them until they actually let me work on this film when it came on location up in Oregon. And to make a long story short, I, I ended up being a production assistant on this film. And, uh, and on the day that it wrapped, they let me fly back to LA with them for the crew wrap party down in Los Angeles. But on the, on the day before we left, I heard on the radio driving home from the, from the location that Paramount had officially announced that they were going to do a new Star Trek series. So I immediately like put together my resume with my one film credit on it <laughs> and sent it off to Susan Zackett. And she shared it with Eddie Milkis, who was one of the producers on the show. And, uh, and then he shared it with Bob Justman. And I actually got called in for an interview while I was down in Los Angeles. And uh, it was kind of exciting. Um, but ultimately, I didn't get the job. Um, but Bob Justman had written this lovely letter telling me that I was one of the top 10% of the candidates that he had interviewed. And what they had ended up um, doing was hiring two people who already worked at Paramount who were familiar with the studio, like people from the mailroom and stuff like that. So I um, made it my goal when I went back to LA to get a job at the studio. And I, I landed a position as a studio tour guide um, in the guest relations department which involved giving studio tours and also working on live shows with live audiences like Family Ties and Cheers. And I can't remember the names of all the shows that they had, but it was like Soul Train, <laughs> all these shows with live audiences. And uh, that's how I got my foot back in the door at the studio. And one day my boss came in and said, you're a Trekkie, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, the producers are going to have a cast and crew screening of their pilot episode of this new Star Trek show at one of the screening rooms here on the lot. And they need two pages to do door duty and check people's names off the list. And at the end, when everybody gets in, then you guys can go in and sit in the back and watch the pilot episode. Are you interested oh, in doing this? And I'm like, am I interested in doing this? <laughs> so at that night, I was doing my door duty, wearing my little page outfit. And, and when Bob Justman came up, he remembered me. And he's like, Eric, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm working on the lot now as a, as a page. And he's like, I haven't seen you like around the sets or anything and i'm like well the sets are closed to the they're closed sets so i haven't been trying to like sneak into the sets or anything and uh, literally the next day the next day i came back from doing my tour duties or whatever and um, there was a message for me in the page office saying that bob justman called and wants you to call him back and i called him back and he said one of our pas got promoted and i was wondering if if you're still interested in this job. <laughs> and uh, 
I think I dropped the phone or became speechless for the first time in my life. And he's like, are you, are you there? Hello? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I want this job. But I, I went over to uh, meet with him and uh, I sort of felt guilty because when you, there's so much turnover for people who work as pages and work in the mailroom that um, the, the director of our department had made all the pages agree that when you start there that you won't look for another job for at least six months. And and it was only like two months into this job when Bob Justin offered me the PA job on Star Trek. And I, I said, you know, I feel really bad because I made the six-month commitment. And Bob Justin yelled out to Carol Eisner, who was his assistant, and he's like, Carol, bring in the, the stack of resumes, you know, for people who applied for the PA job. And she comes in and there's like this stack, like two feet tall of, of resumes. He's like, if you're not interested, I've got plenty of people lined up to take this position. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll take it. So I literally like the next day started working on Star Trek The Next Generation. It was the 13th episode. It was October. So it was this this time, like, what, 27 years ago or something? Yeah, 20, 27, 28 years ago, right? 87? Because it was October yeah. of 87. Yeah, so yeah. 28 years ago. Wow. Okay, so, so you get the job on, on, on Star Trek. What exactly were you doing on the show what is what is it that a production assistant does and and did it differ from what you were doing on say you know cheers or or soul train or or those those types of things yeah well as a page on the live audience shows we were just um, basically coordinating the audiences and getting them in their seats and helping show people to the bathrooms and making sure people stayed in their seats while the, the cameras are rolling and stuff like that and managing the lines and prior to the show and after the show getting people out of the studio um and on on star trek which is does not have a live audience obviously we the pas do a lot of uh, running around and running errands so there's two production assistants on the show um there was me and my friend heidi who I've known also since grade, like from high school, junior high, who's from my same hometown, who literally got the job on Star Trek three days after I did because I started and then the other PA quit. Oh. <laughs> so, so three days into it, I became the senior PA. <laughs> and basically what we did was we, anything that the producers or anybody on the show needed, we ran it around. So we both had bikes and we uh, we did a lot of like delivering of script scripts and script revisions and uh, memos and you name it there was back in those days there really wasn't email or you couldn't email scripts to people so everything was hard copies and we so we spent a lot of time like running over to the to the print shop picking up scripts running over to the writing staff to pick up the originals to take over to the print shop and back and forth and around and around and delivering memos delivering petty cash to people um, like the actors would uh, have petty cash reimbursements for different things like uh, Michael Dorn and Marina Sirtis would get reimbursed for facials and and Brent Spiner, people who wore a lot of makeup. 
And and so every once in a while I'd be down like at the set delivering scripts or something, and Marina would be like, "Eric, where's my petty cash?" And then I have to <laughs> run over to the cashier's office and pick up Marina's petty cash, stuff like that. It, it was just whatever. If people needed lunches, if you know, I would also um, sometimes, uh, well, frequently like once a week go to like a local um, store where where they stock like sodas and snacks for the office and load up my car with you know three hundred dollars worth of like office snacks and sodas oh. haul them back to the studio for the production office a lot of stuff like that okay were, were there any snacks or or drinks i this is where my head goes in a, in a situation like this were there any snacks or drinks that were forbidden was there anything where like somebody was like if i ever see this you know what lights out like this is just I don't think there was any forbidden things, but there were definitely things like if Rick Berman wants Diet Coke instead of Diet Pepsi, there better be Diet right. Coke, stuff like that. But um, I don't even remember what kind of snacks we used to get. But, sure. So yeah. I, I imagine that a job like that would really sort of give a, a fan like yourself sort of like a, a, a very cool peek behind the curtain as to you know what was going on i mean as someone who had just come in just just watched the pilot you know before anyone else like and now you were seeing like all of this like brand new trek in, in a lot of ways like what was your your reaction to it well i i was it was like to me the greatest thing ever my dream come true like unbelievable like i couldn't even believe that it actually happened so it was like i'm always pinching myself but at the same time there was a certain degree of reality that that hits you right in the face when you're this excited you know trekkie who gets the dream job of a lifetime and then you run into the reality of a, a production team who were uncertain at this particular juncture in time whether the show would even be successful. There was a huge amount of secrecy around it um, and a lot of paranoia. And and so people, a lot of people just who work in the business don't understand fans. So they have these preconceived notions of what, what it means to be a fan. And so I always get stuff like people asking me like, oh, how much could you get for this phaser at a Star Trek convention or whatever? You know, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't collect stuff or sell stuff. Or, but the, and, and so there were times when I actually was accused of, like, taking things or doing stuff that I hadn't really done. So there was sort of a, a certain air of beware of what you wish for because it might come true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember getting in trouble because Majel Barrett at the time was still running her Star Trek, Inside Star Trek club through Lincoln Enterprises. I don't know if you guys remember that's those days, but Majel actually ran a Star Trek fan club. And she asked me to be the editor of the, the newsletter while I was also working on the show. And Rick Berman found out and was like furious. Like, what are you doing? You can't do that. It's a conflict of interest, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. The, 
Gene Roddenberry's Gene wife asked me. Right. Yeah. How are you, you going to turn that down? Right. Like that's... So there was all this kind of thing going on at the same time that it was also a really amazing experience because some interesting things happened in the first couple of seasons. There was a writer strike and there was also a director strike. And I remember um, at the end of the first season, I think it was when the writer strike started, right? before the end of the season. They had not um, finished all the scripts for the season and we were getting ready to do the neutral zone. And um, Maurice Hurley, who was the head writer, came up to me at the PA table one day in the production office. And you have to imagine, um, the production office was like a, like a mobile trailer thing. There was uh, offices around the outside and then a, a big open bullpen in the middle. And in the middle, there were four or five different desks and some tables for all the secretaries who worked for different producers and the production coordinator. And so Heidi and I sat at one of these tables and basically just ran errands for whoever needed stuff done. And so Maurice Hurley walks in one day in the production office and comes over to me and says, because they were working on the script, but they the writers couldn't officially be working on it because the strike had started. And Maurice Hurley says to me, I need a list of uh, names for Romulans. And I'm like, okay. I said, what do you want me to do? Like, make them up? <laughs> and he's like, no, look it up in a Romulan encyclopedia. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, little do you know, someday there probably will be a Romulan. <laughs> but no, I, I got to like make up the names for all those characters in, in that episode and little things like that every now and then were a lot of a lot of fun. So did you, I mean, you said that you had sort of a reputation for sort of being like the fan on, on set or whatever. Did people sort of, who were making the show, uh, take advantage of that? I mean, did, did Maurice Hurley, for example, come specifically to you or was it just because you were well, the I guy think, sitting there? I think he did come to me because he knew I was a Star Trek fan. Yeah. Um, but there were other fans who worked on the show too, like Mike Akuda, Richard Arnold, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, a few others. But yeah, I, so what ha happened when Heidi and I um, became PAs is we started to sort of divvy up the errand running into different groups because Heidi was really more interested in uh, the stuff going on at the stage and and uh, costume making and stuff like that, and I was more interested in the writing part. So the, the production office was located like right in the middle of Paramount and then the, the sound stages were over on the far like east side of the studio and the writing department was on the far west side of the studio. So Heidi and I sort of agreed that I would be like the PA for the writing department, go back and forth for all their stuff. And she would do more of the sound stage kind of back and forth. And of course we, intermixed our duties whenever it was required but that's how I sort of became more involved with the writers and, and the people working over in the in the writing building which was separate from the production office so so that eventually led to you becoming a, a script coordinator on on the show yeah um, the script coordinator on the first season Janet Sternod for some reason um, 
took a leave of absence and never came back. And nobody could figure out where she went or why she never came back. And so for a while, <clears throat> we didn't really have a script coordinator, but there was a script typist and some people in the production or in the writing department that were trying to keep it together. And then one day there was this terrible accident and uh, a shelf fell down on one of on the script typist and hit her right in the face and broke her nose oh. and so, so she had to go on a medical leave of absence and suddenly there was nobody who knew how to coordinate the, the office over in the rating department so um rick berman's assistant terry um, convinced the producers that they should let me take over and do that so i that's how i became the script coordinator during the um, third season was it was it like at the start of the third season or um i like, think it sort just... of started at the tail end of the second season and then yeah. because some weird stuff happened during that season too because of, because then there was another strike I, and i'm and i'm losing track of like the timeline but they were working on um sh on shades of gray which yeah. at the time yeah. which at the time had no title it was just called um, you know nd bottle show and they needed someone to go do research on clips that they could use to fill in between like a very skeletal script that had been drafted so i went off and they and it was assigned to me to go over to post-production and like look through every single episode that had been produced and like actually pull clips so that rick berman could could look at clips and see what they could put into this episode and it, it was in one week i worked 80 hours pulling oh. all these like clips together and in the meantime i actually named the episode because i they were like, I don't know what we're going to call this. And, and I tried to convince them it should be called Riker's Brain. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great reference. Yeah, especially especially given and, the reputation that has since. Yeah. Uh... And ironically, uh, Mike Akuda and the guys in the art department, they were designing that machine that Riker was going to have his head stuck into. And they had created this thing that looked exactly like the sphere with all the things sticking out of it from Spotsbury. <laughs> and it, they almost got it past everybody because most of the producers had no realization the similarities to Spock's brain. But um, somebody figured it out and they decided <laughs> not to do that. So I eventually said, well, let's, let's call it Shades of Grey. There's no black or white to this episode. Like, okay. So that was my very first screen credit because I went to David Livingston and I said, I worked my ass off on this episode. I think I should get a, a screen credit. And he's like, well, what, what do you think your credit should be? And I said, well, researcher or something like that. So I got a, it was, I did get the credit and uh, shortly thereafter, Richard Arnold got his screen credit as researcher <laughs> for every episode after that but then i became the script coordinator and then i had my um, credit on the show too. It, it's sort of been documented because there was that uh, the chaos on the bridge that, that came out and everything 
from your perspective, uh, some of the tumult that was going on, how apparent was that from your point of view? Like, were you, I mean, you're, you were obviously there during a time where there was, you know, there was, there was substantial dust and some movement and, um, you know, some, some different opinions about direction of the show and that sort of thing. Like, how, how obvious was that? Or was that all kept very much behind closed doors for a few people? Well, there was always stuff going on that was beyond my purview because I was at the low end of the totem. But there was also stuff that you you couldn't help but notice. For example, when I started as a PA on the 13th episode of the first season, it was, it was the same exact week that David Gerald and DC Fontana were leading the show under not so great of circumstances. And I didn't know all the details of what had gone on prior to my arrival. I just knew that something bad was going on. And uh, I had basically been warned not to hang around them for uh, fear of being associated with the wrong people or whatever. Mm. And so that's when I suddenly realized, because I was so naive, I guess, as a, a Trek fan who had this, you know, belief in how humans will be better and will, you know, the future will be better. Somehow I just thought working on Star Trek would be like that, you know, but it wasn't. It's just typical nasty 20th century politics. And uh, so I was sort of disillusioned relatively quickly into the process because there always seemed like there was some crisis going on, whether it was a writer strike or a director strike or, you know, but once the show actually <clears throat> launched, they knew it, they knew we were successful, and um, but it was still tentative for the first couple of seasons um, because the show didn't really get its stride until the third season. So there was always a lot of stress and tension. And at the end of the second season, Maurice Hurley had announced that he was leaving the show, and so there was a lot of um, tumult over who was going to replace him and they had hired a writer named Dave or Michael Wagner to come in and replace Maurice Hurley for the third season and um, when Michael Wagner came in we were way behind we didn't have any scripts ready and he just couldn't handle the stress of it and apparently a lot of it um, for some, for a lot of the writers, the, the stress was generated by Gene Roddenberry's feedback on on the scripts and stuff, and people needing to do what he wanted them to do. And so Michael Wagner did not last very long. He he just quit, and suddenly there was no head writer on the show. But I was the script coordinator, and for a few weeks, it was my job to go like over and hang out with Rick Berman and actually take all the script notes from Rick Berman and then go back and transcribe those into the scripts and stuff because there was literally nobody running the writing department and um, so in a weird way it was like me and rick berman and then uh, they hired michael pillar and michael came in and and uh, michael just sort of took the bull by the horns and decided to get things organized and it took a while 
and it was stressful on the staff who had survived the second season and and were part of the third season because uh, they weren't used to Michael's management style. So there was there was a lot of there to me there was always something going on that was like stressful. And and when you're working on any kind of TV show, and you're typically working 10, 12, 15 hours a day, and it and the way television works because of the, the union turnarounds for actors and directors and different people, you, you start at a, a relatively normal hour on Monday. If you work in the office, it's like coming around eight. If you're one of the actors, you've probably been in since four in the morning getting your makeup on. But every day, um, the hours run longer and longer because you have to start later and later because of the union turnarounds. Because they have to have 12 hour turnarounds from the time they leave until they come back. Mm -hmm. So by Friday, sometimes you're not starting production until one o'clock in the afternoon, but the office staff are still coming in at eight o'clock in the morning. But then you're there till two o'clock in the morning at night because the office can't shut down while production is still going on and there's still script revisions happening until midnight and so it's it's pretty stressful a lot of work yeah a lot of hours like... yeah but that's any tv show it's not just star trek yeah they're all like that. Huh. well what what exactly were your your duties as script coordinator like how how did your job change from uh you know, when you were a, a production assistant? Well, the job of the script coordinator was to coordinate the typing, proofreading, printing, and distribution of all the scripts and all the revisions. And uh, there was a script typist, so I didn't have to do everything, but I helped with a lot of the transcriptions. And depending on the writer of a particular episode, uh, it just depends on what that particular writer's style was like. For Michael, Michael would handwrite all of his notes in a script and then just hand it to me, and then I would work with the script typist and they integrate all those changes into the scripts. Um, some writers would do it on a computer and then just hand you a disc, and then you would have to proofread it against the last version of the script to make sure that you marked any changes that occurred because every time there's a, a any change in the script you have to put an asterisk on the right column of the page on every single line that there's a change so that the actors can see like instantly like if their lines have changed or if the direction has changed and so there's a lot of uh, proofreading involved and tedious back and forth and the producers and writers are always on one level of existence and they're they're communicating with the production office is waiting for script changes that have been requested could be holding up production which is costing thousands of dollars an hour and the writers will finish handwriting their notes and then call production and say the revisions are done except they're not done because they haven't yeah. even been transcribed into the script yet or and so then, you know, Mary Howard or one of the other producers would be calling every 10 minutes. Are the changes ready? Are the scripts ready? Yeah, it's just like 
I'm going to strangle you. It's like the, when they're ready, you will actually get them because we're not just sitting on them like, yeah. So, yeah, there was some, you know, times when I would get a little hot under the collar. You know, it wasn't all fun and games. <laughs> But but at the same time, I imagine, uh, especially as a, a a Star Trek fan and someone who's interested in the writing process and everything like that, it must have been fascinating to see, you know, for one thing, I mean, you're getting sort of like a sneak peek at what's to come, but also yeah. just sort of like the process and the way that, that a script yeah. evolves and, and all that stuff. I imagine that must have been a really good learning experience, right? It's it's an amazing learning experience. and. Um, you know, and I was always allowed to make contributions and and give notes and feedback on things if I had issues because um, one of the jobs of being script coordinator was also checking continuity. So a lot of the writers and producers on the show weren't that familiar with the original series. So sometimes I would just have to bring to their attention that something that was said in a script contradicted something that was previously established on the show and as next generation went along more and more of that continuity checking was just for next generation's backstory but like you know in the beginning of next generation you can probably remember episodes like the one with mcgillum where it was just like this black blob in space at the beginning and and like someone says we've never seen anything like it and i'm like Except in the immunity syndrome, because <laughs> we don't know what's in there yet, but we've seen something like this before. And I said, you can't have someone saying, we've never seen anything like this every single week when we have seen something like this. So, you know, I would give my notes. And when Jerry Taylor um, joined the staff of Next Generation, um, she wrote some really great episodes like Sarah and I got to give some interesting um, feedback that she actually incorporated into the backstory where Sarah's telling Picard about uh, what Spock's childhood was like on Vulcan. And and so I told her about the yesteryear animated episode, uh-huh. which, uh-huh. which a lot of times isn't considered canon. And canon. she actually incorporated a whole bunch of that backstory into what Sarah was telling Picard. So I thought that was kind of cool. Because I know that those are the things that the fans love. And and an average general viewer, it doesn't matter if they they know it or not. It's still an interesting backstory, but at least the fans know that somebody's actually, you know, it's like Easter eggs, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's super cool. Yeah, it shows that somebody cares. Like mm-hmm. that, that moments like that are, are, you're right. They're so important to fans because it feels like they, they haven't, you know, and obviously they have, but like, it feels like, you know, they, they're giving the love back to you. It's like, you know, thank you for paying attention and we're, we're going to respect that. So that is, that's, that's awesome. So that is. And so I tried to do that um, whenever I could. Okay. I guess this is kind of a two part question, sort of like different sides of the same coin. I guess my first, my first part would be, when you were uh, typing up these scripts or whatever, was there ever a moment, I'm sure there were a lot of moments, but is there one in particular where you were sitting there doing the typing and then you you read something and you were just like, 
oh crap this is going to be the most amazing thing ever you know something like that well you know, even, even if it ended up not being the most amazing thing ever you know but you know when you were reading it it seemed like it would be it, it's hard i can't remember things that far back in time but i just have to say there's so much going on and you don't really you're trying to go as fast as possible you're working because you're always like in production working on three different episodes simultaneously you're working on prep for the, the episode that has to shoot next week you're working on the one that's shooting right now and there's post-production going on for the episode that just finished plus the other ones that haven't aired yet and so that there's so many things going on i think um when you're right in the middle of it you lose perspective a little bit yeah. and uh, so and another thing that happened was when michael pillar became the head writer on the show we the first season well third season when michael started we were so far behind and there were no scripts that Michael convinced the studio to open it up, to let him open up submissions to freelance writers, whether or not they had agents, which is sort of unheard of. I mean, it is unheard of. Like, no studio does that. But Michael really twisted their arms and said, I need to open up this process and get some fresh ideas in here. Because so many people who were professional writers were coming in to pitch for the show, but they just didn't know Star Trek. And and um, Michael's like, if we at least open it up to anybody who wants to submit a script, we might start seeing some, some, some stuff from people who know what Star Trek is about. And one of those spec scripts was Ron Moore's script. Um, forgot the title of it but the the one with, was yeah it? the bonding yeah. where the kid's mother dies on an away mission and so that was sort of like a huge thing to see and ron was a huge star trek fan so i i found out while while we were working together that back in the days when i was running starfleet he, he was an ensign <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> and, and we found his someone found his like starfleet certificate to, oh. <laughs> that i had signed <laughs> with his name on it and we we put it in there was this uh, inbox for all the writers like downstairs in one of the offices that everybody went into to pick up their mail and stuff and it was so funny when ron saw that in his inbox he was like mortified because it was like he he didn't want people to know that he was such, like tricky and and you and we just it was like when he saw that he knew everybody knows everybody knows <laughs> so there was like fun stuff like that that would happen and so then during this process I might as well just jump to yesterday's enterprise yeah. happened yeah um, so I think it was yeah it was the third season and uh, that fall wh whatever year that star trek 5 came out okay 89 um, i think it was 1989 yeah. same summer as ghostbusters 2 indiana jones and last crusade and batman <laughs> that, was it in june or spring it, yeah yeah it, it came out in june yeah so i had met this um, other guy um, trent who was uh, uh, um, 
had submitted a spec script called Yesterday's Enterprise. And we were getting so many spec scripts, there were like thousands of them. And I had to process all the log them all in. And I didn't actually read them, but I just had to make sure that they got distributed around to different um, producers and writers on the show who were supposed to read through them and then let Michael Hiller know if there was anything interesting going on. And But scripts would just sit around lingering on people's desks for like months and months and months and months. And I, uh, I, I can't remember even how I met Trent, but I, um, I remember he was also a studio page and we had all gone to a screening of Star Trek V, a studio screening for employees. And we were, we were all so disappointed in that movie that we actually ended up going to one of those 24-hour diners on Sunset Boulevard on the Sunset Strip until like four o'clock in the morning, just like, <laughs> like taking this whole thing apart. And so eventually we were just like, you know what? We can write a better Star Trek than that. So we're like, so he was telling me about his spec script, Yesterday's Enterprise. And I was telling him about a story that I had been working on where I wanted to bring back Sarek in a, in a Guardian of Forever kind of story. And the two of us just started like working together. And his spec script was still sort of floundering around the office. Um, but we both ended up going to a Star Trek convention up in San Jose, which was his hometown. And Denise Crosby was the guest at the convention. And after, afterwards, they went by to say hi to her. And, uh, oh, and I forgot to mention that during the first season, I was also helping Denise Crosby run her fan club oh, on really? the side. So I used to process all the fan mail and send out all the autographed photos. So I was doing all that on the side. I don't think Rick Berman ever found out about that one. <laughs> so when I saw Denise up in the in, in San Jose, she had started hinting that she would love to come back on the show as a guest star. And so she said, you should write a script and bring me back. And so Trent and I were like, how could we do that? You know, like, if, if we'd have to, it would have to be like a time travel story or something. So we started... Um, contemplating the story that I had been working on um, that involved the Enterprise escorting Sarek to the Guardian planet to pick up a team of Vulcan archaeologists who had been researching ancient Vulcan history. And of course, in the process, something happens, there's an accident, and Sarek, who is the founder of modern Vulcan mm -hmm. philosophy, gets killed prematurely in the past. And, and instantly the universe like switches over to the a Romulan Vulcan empire that has wiped out the Klingons and is on the verge of like wiping out the Federation. And of course, everything has changed up in space, but not on the planet. And so Sarek, who was on the planet, realizes that something has gone horribly wrong. But meanwhile, Picard now thinks they've just captured a, a Romulan spy right on the planet trying to access the Guardian of Forever so that they can destroy the Federation. And so this whole drama happens. But meanwhile, Tasha's alive and back on the ship and Worf is gone because the Klingons have been wiped out by the Romulan Empire. And, uh, and, uh, and then there's this whole story that ensues with 
Sarah tried to convince Picard that this is all wrong and and Picard doesn't believe him and and Sarah's like, well, let me do a mind up with you and then you'll know that I'm telling you the truth. And Riker's like, no, he's just trying to steal the secret code so he can destroy the Federation. <laughs> and so there's like all this drama. And so we were like working on the start of this idea. And a few weeks later, I got wind that Denise Crosby's uh, agent had contacted the producers. And Rick Berman had sent a memo over to Michael Peller saying, um, Denise Crosby wants to come back on the show. Do you guys like have any idea how we could possibly do that? And when I heard about that, I was just like, oh my God, I have to like, I gotta go tell Michael the story, right? <laughs> so I went in and uh, and just walked into Michael's office and I, he said, what, what is it? And I'm like, I just need a minute to tell you, you know, that Trent and I have been working on the story, blah, blah, blah. So I told him this whole story and Michael was already aware of Trent's spec script because it had finally worked its way up to his desk and and Michael was trying to convince Rick Berman to, to consider doing a story about a ship from the past. But in Trent's um, spec script, the Enterprise C had come through time, but it didn't alter the universe. But there was the risk of it changing the timeline somehow if we didn't send them back. And it became more of a moral dilemma about sending them back to a battle where they would die and whether or not we should tell them or not tell them or not send them. So it was more of a, a moral dilemma kind of story. But there was no time travel. There was no Tasha, none of that. So Michael listened to my pitch, and then he's like, Michael always would hate anything to do with the original series because he thought it was a gimmick. Like, it's a gimmick. We can't use the Guardian. We can't use Sarek. But he's like, but what if you like do like combine Trent's story and your story together, and and somehow when the ship comes through time, it alters the future, and Tasha's alive, and we're like. Okay, so that's sort of how <laughs> yesterday's Enterprise like came about, and then it was Michael's idea because we were like, "Well, how how will anybody know that the timeline has changed?" And Michael finally came up with the idea that Guinan would be like mm. an extra sensory, you know, perception of some sort, and so everybody was involved in sort of making. Yesterday's Enterprise comes to fruition. That's that's an amazing story. I mean, and the fact that it then became, I mean, certainly at the time, you know, the the best hour of Next Generation, you know, up until that point, and still to this day, one of the best hours in Star Trek history. I mean, that's, I mean, that's just an amazing story, you know? Well, and this is where that whole um, perspective thing comes into play um, because this was all going on in October 26 years ago today, like in the month of October. Trent and I were turning in stories. Michael was giving notes back and then we turned in our final draft and then um, they turned it over to Ron Moore to polish up the story and he made some, some improvements to it. And then 
the notion was they were going to be shooting it in January and that they had scheduled a time. And then it turned out that Denise and Whoopi weren't both available that week. And the only week that they could do it was the first week of December, which was five weeks earlier than they had planned. So Michael basically told the writing staff that they had to have it by at the end of Thanksgiving weekend. <laughs> and uh, so Ira Bear, Ron Moore, Hans Beimler, and Richard Manning, all and Michael all took a piece of the, they broke the story and they all took an act home Thanksgiving weekend, which made nobody happy. <laughs> and they came back on a Monday morning, like a few days before we were supposed to start shooting. And we're like, here it is, just stick it together. <laughs> and so everybody's notion was, this is going to suck. It's like, it's like a hodgepodge of, it's like, you know, random pieces that we just stuck together. And, and uh, I literally, people were moping around, like, this is going to be like the worst episode ever. And, and you know, like, um, if you ever go to a movie and you see like 12 names of, on the writing credit, mm-hmm. you know it's gonna suck because it's like <laughs> it's like it's been rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and and so it always means something terrible. But in this particular case, it actually turned out well. And Michael didn't get a credit because the Writers Guild said that they could only have four names on the credit, and technically they were only allowing three names. But Hans Beimler and Richard Manning are a writing team so they count they counted as one and then ira and ron got the other part and then trent and i got the story credit so seeing as how you know you're still doing your day job as as you know script supervisor and everything were you like then having to like see what all of these revisions are and like put oh, them yeah. together for your own script and yeah like what 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 were you thinking as you yeah. were seeing other people like you know tinker with your with your story? Well, first, first I was very impressed with Rod Moore did a fantastic job of like polishing up the storyline because um, the whole Guinan thing really helped improve the story because some of the first drafts that Trent and I had written were. We were trying to figure out how is how are they going to find it? How are they going to know that time has been altered? And so we had all these clunky notions that before the Enterprise C comes through the through the uh, spatial anomaly, that the Enterprise had sent a probe into it, and then the probe would come back, and, and so there was some like recorded, but it was just too technical and blah 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 boring and. So when Michael introduced the Guinan element, I think that really added a, a dimension of, you know, humanity and, and interpersonal conflict that was really fantastic for the story. But Ron really fleshed it in and, and did a great job. So I, I was generally impressed. And then I actually was allowed to give notes on some um, things where I was able to point out some contradictions about if if so and so had been alive twenty years ago, you know I can't remember specifics. I think I talk about it a little bit 
in the book that I wrote about the making of Yesterday's Enterprise. Um, but there were other people like uh, Mike Kuhn and Rick Sternbach who were submitting notes about spatial anomalies and what would happen if there was a, a rip in the time, space-time continuum, whatever. So there was like a lot of people who were just really sort of excited about this episode. Oh my God, the way the, the construction people and the set designers just sort of ripped the whole place apart and like built things that we never even envisioned in the original script because we thought it would be too expensive to do. Mm -hmm. So the cool part was um, when the episode was finally finished and the producers would usually get a, a VHS copy of the episode like a week or a few days before the, it actually aired. So I hadn't seen it yet. And uh, one day, Susan Sackett, who was Gene Ronberry's executive assistant, um, called on my phone and said, Gene wants to see you in his office. <laughs> and usually when the executive producer wants to see you, you're like, oh my God, what did I do? I'm like, I'm, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> so I was like, because I knew it wasn't my birthday. Because that's the only other time you got called into the executive producer's office is if it was your birthday. And they were going to surprise you. But Susan had arranged a surprise viewing party with all the writers. And Trent, she had invited Trent. And they, she had gotten the cake and it said, congratulations, American Trent, blah, blah, blah. And, and we actually got to sit and watch the episode with Gene Rodberry wow. and all the writers, Michael, Ron, all the guys. So that is probably like the, the highlight of my entire career that moment that day it's pretty cool yeah that's yeah. awesome and, and of course especially that moment when everybody turns to gene and goes what did you think gene <laughs> <laughs> and you're like did he like it <laughs> and he, he said he did so excellent excellent and it's so i mean because it has such a unique you know so many unique elements to it it's like like the Enterprise C, for example, right? Like you can have, I'm sure you probably do have like a bunch of like toys and keepsakes, which are <laughs> specific to your episode. That's so awesome, you know? I know there were things that came out that I never imagined. Like um, the California State Lottery had Enterprise Starship like lottery tickets. And there was an Enterprise C lottery <laughs> oh. ticket. And uh, there have been all sorts of, stuff like that over the years i mean this year is actually the 25th anniversary and yeah. so it's kind of amazing yeah. i don't know if you guys do you guys ever listen listen to the mission logs that, oh yeah 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 we uh but, they're they're um on, on the network as well yeah so. so this last week was yesterday's enterprise oh was it week. oh see i yeah and they they did a really nice job i thought of uh, critiquing the episode because I basically jumped right to the conclusion at the beginning that yes, it passed the smell test. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I mean, it is definitely you know one of the best for sure. This isn't the only episode of Star Trek that you wrote. You also wrote an episode of a Voyager in in was it was season one, right? Yeah, first season. And and it was a uh, Prime Factors with uh, David R. George the Third, who's you know now he's written a, a ton of of Star Trek mm -hmm. books and everything too, including one with you. But yep. uh, how how did that one come about? 
Well, we had worked together, David and I, um, pitching a bunch of different stories for Deep Space Nine, which never came to fruition. Um, although there were some stories that we had pitched that did come to fruition that we didn't get credit for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> particularly the one about Jared Zia, you know, meeting the reincarnation of one of her past people when uh. it became a woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had pitched that multiple times. And anyway, I'll skip right past all of the negative stories to uh, <laughs> when uh, Voyager came along. We got invited in the pitch, so we worked on some stories. And I had had this idea that was um, inspired by the original series episode, Assignment Earth, because of the one with Gary Seven, yeah. who had, had been taken as a, as a child by aliens to another planet on the other side of the galaxy. And then apparently he wasn't the only one. They had taken multiple people and raised them to come back and sort of like run interference for critical moments in Earth's history. And at the very end of the episode, when he gets beamed off the transporter pad uh, by the alien transporter, Kirk says to Scotty, you know, trace the, the where that came from, right? And Scotty says something like, it came from so far away that our sensors don't go that far. And at that very moment, I'm thinking, so somewhere out there on the other side of the galaxy is a civilization with a transporter technology that can beam people like halfway across the galaxy. And what if Voyager like encounters these people and it's the aliens from that who who took Gary Seven, right? And of course, you know, typical Michael Filler. Oh, it's a gimmick from the original <laughs> Star Trek. We don't want to use a gimmick. But, but he liked the general premise that the Enterprise goes, or Voyager, sorry, goes to this planet that has this technology, but they won't let us use it because they've got their own version of a prime directive that would be interfering with us because we haven't developed that far yet. Mm-hmm. And so I always thought, well, it would be interesting to turn the prime directive upside down on its head and see how we would like it if we were on the other end of it. And so that was the premise for the story. And we pitched it to Michael and Jerry, and they liked it enough that Michael said, we, I need, we need you to come back and re-pitch it, um, but coming from sort of like a, a Sierra Madre point of view. So we went home and rented the treasure of Sierra Madre and watched this whole thing. And, and of course, at the end of the treasure of Sierra Madre, it was like it was fool's gold instead of yeah. real gold, right? So we thought, okay, well, that's what Michael wants it to be. So we'll go back, <laughs> pitch this. And the second time around, then we were only pitching to Jerry Taylor and we're like pitching the story. And she's like, well, that's not what Michael wanted. I'm like, but it. But it is what Michael wanted. He told us to go watch Treasure of Sierra Madre, and that's exactly what the Treasure of Sierra Madre is about. I, I don't know. Anyhow, somehow, she she did agree to buy the story and they got to write the story. But then they uh, actually turned it over to two other freelance writers to rewrite it. And uh, when it came in, 
it really hadn't changed all that much from the version that David and I had written. And when when the credits had come in, and that was one of the things that was my job as a script coordinator on Next Generation, was to submit the, the credit proposals to the Writers Guild. But when I saw that these other writers were getting like half the story credit, even though they really didn't change anything, I we we actually uh, contested it with the Writers Guild and David and I won the arbitration and got sole story credit for that episode. But I really enjoyed how it turned out, especially the scene with Tuvok and Janeway at the end of the episode. Yeah, it was good because it, it kind of, I mean, obviously, you know, people are very critical of Voyager for kind of dropping the the conflict between the the, the, the Maquis, Maquis and the Federation yeah. fairly early on. But this is one of those episodes which, you know, really does sort of touch on that and everything. And it's it's a solid, you know, especially like, you know, that that Star Trek thing of like the ethical dilemma and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 a solid episode for sure. Yeah, so we, were, we were happy with that. Yeah, yeah, it's a good episode. Uh, and it also got nominated for a Sci-Fi Universe Award. No, that I didn't know. There that. you go. Yeah, because yeah. remember there used to be a magazine like Sci-Fi Universe. I remember it well. It was published yeah. by uh, like Larry Flint or something like that. Larry Flint. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a that was a Mark, really good magazine. I think it was Mark Altman. Yeah, yeah, Mark the, Altman. Yeah, he was the yeah no yeah that I remember that very well. It's one of my favorite magazines in high school for sure. I can't remember how many years they had award ceremonies, but um, it was pretty cool to, to be nominated for that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I know we've been running long, so I have I have one final question for you, which is okay. open-ended, I guess, to say the least. But okay. As someone who has worked on, on Star Trek for years and has seen the process and everything, as well as being a fan, as well as you know, having co-written like one of the best episodes ever and all that stuff. Okay. Let's say CBS were to just hand you the keys to the kingdom, say, okay, you're the new Rick Berman. Go make us a Star Trek show. What do you do? I'm not saying like even necessarily like, well, I would do specifically this, but like, would you hire certain people or would you insist on a certain premise or what would you do well i mean that that um i contemplated this many times in my life especially um, when all the sequels were being developed and like Mm -hmm. what would i do and i remember even being approached by some people way back before next generation came along Um, there were some fans who were trying to put together ideas of what a new star trek show would be like even back, even back in the early '80s or late '70s, and uh, I have to say that I really thought it was sort of a, a mistake when they when they did Enterprise and decided to go back and do a prequel series because there's you just run into too many issues with continuity and the fact that you can't make anything really look like it did. And, and make it seem like it fits together because of the advances in television production, special effects, whatever. So I, I always sort of 
wasn't really happy about that idea. Although I've always thought it would be really cool if they did a series and made it look like the original series, kind of like they did with tri Trials and Tribulations and that other um, crossover episode they did. If you if you really went back and sort of recreated the whole look of the original series, I think that would be cool. But I, I always thought the next thing should be like another sort of giant leap into the future, like into the 25th century where you, you send like the very first ship off to another galaxy somehow through whatever kind of, you know, spatial phenomenon or technology that you can develop that will get you to a place where instead of being lost in space, you're actually purposely going that you're so far removed from from the home base that it's more like the original Star Trek where you're boldly going where no one's gone before, but start with a fresh slate, no Klingon, no Romulan, no Klingon, you know, start in a new galaxy with a super advanced ship. I always thought it would be cool, like, instead of uh, turbo shafts and stuff, like, going around the ship, that the, the doors would just be like an energy field and you would say to it where you wanted to go and you would walk through it and come out on, in the other set. And I know that sort of, I mean, you have to think about these things because the turbo shaft has been used as a, a dramatic tool to give people time to have these little interstitial conversations between, you know, locations. So if you suddenly have technology that takes that away, you have to think about what the alternatives would be in the storytelling process. But but that's kind of my idea, that it would just be a super streamlined, futuristic starship with like technology like we've never seen before, going out to another galaxy far away and, and being out on, the, on its own to do its thing. Interesting, interesting. So no JJ-verse. Yeah. Go no. back to the prime. Yeah. No, no light flashes. No. <laughs> so no lens flares. No lens flare. Okay. Fair no. enough. I think I think we've sort of um, exhausted the universe that we that we live in with Star Trek. Mm -hmm. I mean, I kind of I kind of liked the idea when JJ um, in the first movie decided to create a, an alternate reality where you could sort of start fresh and not worry about all those continuity issues. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was terribly disappointed with the second movie. You know, I thought it was too much of a rehash of where we've gone before. It's yeah. not, or it's not, it's not where nobody's gone before. It's where we've already been, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, I hope the next one doesn't repeat that mistake, but uh, we'll see. We shall see. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, thank you very much for, for yeah, joining us you. today. It's been very educational. It's, it's so great to kind of like, you know, get that peek behind the scenes and see what, what, what goes into the making of, you know, our favorite TV shows, you know? So Thanks thank for you. Having me. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's been great. And, and you're, you're, you're more than welcome back anytime. Oh, well, that was really great talking to, to Eric again today, you oh, know, yeah. it's, it's so cool to see what went on behind the scenes and like someone, it's like, he was there for all of it. Like he saw like everything that we love, like mm -hmm. he saw 
it from like the very beginning, like as soon as it came out of the writer's pens, like he had like the first set of eyes on it. That's crazy, you know? Yeah, he he actually get to he, he got to watch these things that are basically like memories for us form from the very first. And, you know, and he was there like at, you know, such a pivotal time for Star Trek as well, like the series as a whole. But, you know, while Next Generation is finding its footing. So he he actually got to witness you know, what we consider like such an important piece of history firsthand. That's just so neat. Yeah. And, and the story of him, not, not, not just, you know, working on the show, but then like the creation of yesterday's enterprise, Mm -hmm. it's just like, how does this happen? Like, how does the universe like unfold in, in, in such a way to make that happen, you know, and to give us like one of the best hours in television history. That's so cool. Yeah, Yeah, it is. Well, it was great talking to Eric, but hey, we're not done yet. You know, this is the jam-packed season finale of uh, of, of commentary Trek stars, and we started off the season by talking to another uh, Star Trek creator, and that was James Kahn, mm-hmm. who had worked on Voyager, as well as writing, you know, like the uh, the adaptation, the novelization of Return of the Jedi and whatnot. And as we mentioned back then, and we, we talked about a couple weeks ago as well, He's uh, trying to get um, a new movie off the the ground called Wrong Side Bob, which he's mm-hmm. writing and, and co-directing. And it stars uh, another Star Trek alum, Ronnie Cox, who yeah. played uh, Captain Jellicoe in uh, Chain of Command. So before we go, we have a brief interview with James where he discusses Wrong Side Bob and gives you a little bit more info on, on that project. So let's hand it over to, to I guess, myself and, you. and James. Yeah. yeah. Hey, everyone. I'm back uh, with James Kahn, who was a writer and producer on Star Trek Voyager. We talked to him a few months back about his work on Star Trek as well as the rest of his career. And uh, he's back to talk about his new project, Wrong Side Bob. How's it going, James? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for for coming on the show. Uh, so so tell us what what is Wrong Side Bob? Wrong Side Bob was actually initially uh, a CD I, I wrote and produced a few years ago called Man Walks Into a Bar, uh, and it was a concept album in which every song on the album was about one of the people in this bar on this given night, and the way they, they were all story songs, and the way their stories intermingled, and then it was kind of a meta story that connected them all at the end. It was basically roots music, some folk music, some um, uh, blues, some country. And I tried to write each song in the genre of that character. So the, the dancer was in, a, was in a blues and there was a, a bartender who was kind of jazzier. And there was a, a kid who hung out there who was more of a, a folk music kind of kid. Uh, and ever since I did it, people have been telling me I needed to do either a, a screenplay or a stage musical out of it. And I finally took that to heart and, uh, and wrote a, a feature film script, which I called Wrong Side Bob, which is one of the characters. He's actually more of a minor character in the CD. I make him uh, one of the lead characters in the movie. So uh, this is a project which you're you're trying to fund right now on Indiegogo, right? Exactly, yeah. Okay. Um, and it stars Ronnie Cox? Yes, Ronnie is... Uh, 
I mean, we, did, we didn't actually ever cross paths on Star Trek. He was uh, Captain Jellico in The Next Generation. Yeah. I, I did write one freelance episode for TNG, but I was really not involved majorly in Star Trek until Voyager. Um, but I, I uh, crossed paths with, with Ronnie because he was also a, uh, a singer-songwriter. Uh, and he's actually been spending more of his time in recent years uh, touring with his, uh, his, his folk music than uh, acting in film. And I saw him uh, at a house concert about a year ago and thought, boy, he would be just perfect for the title role of Wrong Side Bob, who's this uh, you know, quirky old barfly of a certain age who uh, sort of used the, he likes to say he's the mayor of the bar. That's just right for him. Yeah, you know, um, I, obviously among Star Trek fans, uh, you know, people love Ronnie Cox because of that role, and um, it, it's kind of great to see him, you know, whenever he's he's in anything. Um, but the the fact that he is a musician himself, I, I wasn't aware of that. Um, does that play into the the story at all? I mean, since this is based on a uh, on an album, is is it? very musical in nature it's, it's very very musical it's, it's i wouldn't call it a musical but it's a musical in the same way that uh oh brother where out there was a musical it's kind of a comedy drama there's a lot of music in it some of it is a little bit surreal where you know you wouldn't expect music to suddenly start happening some of it is source music as if coming from a jukebox um but so some of you know a number of the songs and it will be my songs from that album but because roddy is uh such a terrific singer-songwriter himself, he'll be doing one of his songs, too. Are, are you going to be, uh, like, re-recording the songs that you did on the album to fit into here, or is it actually incorporating the, the music from the album? Some of both. Um, for example, some of the songs in the album are sung by Wrong Side Bob, Ronnie's character, so he'll, he'll probably use the production tracks for that, uh, but just re- have him revoice it. That's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, now, since this movie is based on an album, I mean, I guess there's, there's, this is kind of a two-part question. First off, it's, it's an adaptation, which is something that you, you've done a lot in your career where you've adapted work from one medium into another, which I'm sure has all sorts of you know, interesting challenges to it. But this is kind of taking that to another level where, I mean, I, I know that, that you said that the, the album was kind of a story a story album or, or story songs or whatever, but still, it, it seems like it's a bit of a um, a jump in terms it is, of. It is a jump, and, and it's. Um, I, I I really enjoy the adaptation process, um, but it, it it takes some skill, and, and and it's not easy at first. I remember when I was uh, adapting the, the Poltergeist screenplay to the novelization. Um, I I had all these. Uh, additional storylines and relationships and subplots that weren't in the movie at all that I wanted to introduce. And Spielberg said, you know, fine, go for it. But, but it demands, you know, once something is in print, it's hard to unthink it and unsee it. So it was hard in a way to uh, undo some of the things that were already in the script to take the story in slightly different directions. Uh, and it was the same with this album. There was a, a more or less a story in my album but that specific story didn't exactly work for a screenplay. So I had to drop elements of it. As I say, the main character in the album um, still has a very large role in the movie, but, but the, the title role is, is this minor character from the album who just had one song in the album. 
So it required, you know, rethinking where I, where it went. I I had to introduce a couple brand new characters who weren't in the album at all. You know, there was, I had to bring in a bad guy, for example. <laughs> <laughs> was the fact that you were adapting your own work um, either more or less of a challenge than adapting someone else's work? Yeah, it's, I found it more of a challenge actually. It's it's easier adapting someone else's because of. I disagree or don't like or something they've done or I think it should go in a different direction. It's easier for me to say, well, that didn't work in the original. I can just take it this way. That's better. But once my own stuff is, it's not exactly set in stone, but it's, it's, uh, it's hardwired into my brain a little bit more. It's harder to undo it. Now that you've gone through the process, I'm sure just like with any creative process, you're now sort of like rethinking what you did originally on the album. Have you, considered maybe like recording an extra track or or even do you, do you just think like oh, i wish i could but now that time has passed yeah no I, in fact uh, you know it's occurred to me that what i should do now is a, is a soundtrack album for the movie that would, yeah. would have some of the songs from the original album but the additional songs that i would write and some other people's songs as well uh, that would be cool for sure um so in addition to you you said that the, you're you've got the campaign going right now on indiegogo in addition to that, I, I saw that one uh, percent of the uh, the the contributions are going to go to the Enable Community Foundation. Right, that was that was a great uh, piece of happenstance. They 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 contacted me initially, just asking if I would start publicizing uh, their good works. Um, and looking into it, they they three D print prosthetic hands, functioning prosthetic hands. And give them away free to kids who need them, kids who don't have hands or arms. I think they contacted me because of my medical background, because I'm a doctor as well. But but that what struck me immediately about that was uh, that you know after Luke Skywalker had his hand cut off by Darth Vader, he got a prosthetic hand and then went on to save the galaxy. <laughs> it seemed like a, a perfect kind of crossover, cross promotion, and and a meshing of uh, of messages and, and just uh, sort of hearts. So, yeah, so we, we got together, and I'm giving a portion of our proceeds from the Indiegogo campaign to them. Wow. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So if people are looking for more info on the project uh, or looking to contribute, uh, where, where, where can they go to find some info? Yeah, just go to Indiegogo, and it's the, uh, the Wrong Side Bob project. Um, and we're giving away, you know, uh, in addition to that, that whole giveaway to, uh, to the Enable Community Foundation, we're giving away a lot of cool perks, um, unrelated really to Wrong Side Bob, but having to do with my, my previous career. Right? I'm giving, you know, I'll be sending out signed uh, Return of the Jedi novelizations and, and uh, some old Star Trek scripts. Um, but I've also got a, a passel of uh, transparency slides, uh, production stills, visuals that they sent me to help me write the novelization from the set when they were filming Return of the Jedi, uh, but they're stamped Revenge of the Jedi. <laughs> At that point, it was, that was still, still the title. So they're really very limited edition. I've signed them as well, but they're pretty much uh, vintage collector's items. So those will be going as perks. Oh, my yeah. favorite perk is, was another complete accident that I just found hilarious, which is uh, I got a very apologetic phone call from Random House a few weeks ago saying that they just re-released the original trilogy of novelizations and spelled my name wrong on the cover. <laughs> spelled it K-H-A-N instead of K-A-H-N. 
So they, they caught it in time to destroy 60,000 copies that were still in the warehouse, but uh, <laughs> some, some thousands got out into the wild as well. So I'm taking some of those as uh, limited edition misprint and signing them, Khan! <laughs> so a franchise crossover to my other, uh, my other life. Excellent. Excellent. It <laughs> sounds really cool. It sounds really cool. Yeah. And, and up on the, the Indiegogo site, there's a trailer and everything, um, yeah, yeah. which, which is pretty cool. Sort of like gives, gives people a sense of, of the, the tone and everything that the, that the yeah, I like to, it's, I like to call it uh, noir meets country. It's kind of a new genre. That's good. That's good. I love like genre mashing and genre yeah. bending. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it feels kind of like, Altman-esque in a lot of ways, you know. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really cool. Um, anything else that, that that people should know about the project or or any uh, other? No, I'm just you know, it's really uh, uh, my first real screen project of the heart. You know, I've, I've spent thirty years crafting and writing and producing things for other people, other people's stories, you know, in, in studios. And this is the, the first thing that really comes from deeply within me. And there's really a, a way in which I feel like my music is maybe some of my best writing and closest to the heart. Um, so it feels like a real passion project to me that I'm, I'm hoping everyone will uh, hop on board and help me make it real. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I, I, I love it when, you know, filmmakers or writers or whoever who have made, you know, a lot of, you know, studio things get to get to do something which is, you know, completely their own vision because it's sort of like you're writing in the purest form in a sense yeah, and yeah that, it's really coming right from my heart absolutely that's that's pretty awesome yeah i, I can't and wait the, to see it the, the the short line of the story of it is a uh, a drifter with amnesia who's struggling to remember his past uh stumbles into this bar where he meets wrong side bob who's uh, an old guy who's desperately trying to forget his past because he has kind of a dark secret yeah yeah together as that's pretty cool that's pretty cool so all right indiegogo that's where people go to to get more info and to contribute and uh what's the the deadline how long do they have till uh about 25 more days we just got started uh about 10 days ago okay cool cool well i'm really excited to see it once it comes out and uh right. yeah appreciate your help and support Oh, yeah. No, no no problem. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, good luck. Okay. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. All right. Well, that, that, was, that was great. Talking to, to James as well. And, you know, um, wrong side, Bob. Go, you know, contribute if you can. Or if you can't contribute, you know, uh, do some retweeting and whatnot. Let your friends yeah. know. And, and uh, yeah, be sure to look for that soon. Yeah, however you can help. Help help him make this happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it's like this show is all about, you know, Star Trek creators doing other things. Here's, you know, your chance to help one of those Star Trek creators doing other things. So, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited about this movie. I, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. All right. Well, it was fun talking to both Eric and James today. Uh, but that's not the only thing we're talking about here on Trek FM this week. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Yeah, he can edit the crap out of a movie. 
literally. Like that's actually <laughs> how he got the job on uh, for Nemesis is he edited the crap out of uh, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, and Mission Impossible 2. And they're like, thanks, Stuart Baird. Earl Grey. Oh, by the way, six hours in. If you press shift, you'll run throughout the whole game. <laughs> press shift when your characters are moving and they'll actually move at a reasonable, reasonable. <laughs> The orb. If he had like a game card, his power, you know, like would be higher yeah. than any other captain for the, their persuasion power. You'll be like, damn, I was winning. And then he went and played a Cisco card on me. The ready room. Someone pointed out that this is actually the shortest title of any Star Trek episode. It's shorter than Voyager's Q squared by half a character because the two is superscript. <laughs> We're number one. We're number one. <laughs> to the journey. It's fake intimacy. Thank you. It is them trying to say Jacote knows Janeway so well that just by fiddling her com badge, he knows the crap's going to hit the fan. <laughs> Commentary, Trek stars. Lost World's a terrible movie. I haven't seen Jurassic World, though. The 602 Club. We wake up in the middle of the night, and I pop back in episode five, and I watch it again. Like, there's something about this movie that from even then you know i'd seen them all it's all clean slate this one was already my favorite literary treks it definitely starts in a very dark place and it doesn't get much brighter at all uh you know until we until we get to the end and and you know there's some hope there but yeah definitely it's it's a dark book women at warp <laughs> There were no, oh, you're a girl, so you can't do that. It's like, well, you know what? You used to hang out with the Kardashian, or the Klingons, so let's see what that would look like. Why don't you try that on for a while? And introducing Metatrex. If you're commander of a starship, a thousand choices are going to uh, confront you in the course of, of your day in, in the captain's chair, and you just can't ignore them. So asking ourselves whether we really have free will is just a meaningless question on that view. I personally would like to be confronted with the choice to warp to Ryza, just saying. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way that you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. 
If you want to contact us, you can fill out the form on trek.fm slash contact, or you can leave us a voicemail. Just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. On Twitter, you can find the network at trek.fm. On Facebook, you can find the network at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And Facebook is also where you'll find the Babel Conference, which is our um, user and listener forum um, where we talk about everything. I just saw something on the Babel conference where someone was talking about uh, the 602 Club episode where you guys talk about um, The Empire Strikes Back, and someone's like, uh, yeah, The the Lost World. It's it's an awesome movie. Uh, That person is insane. And that's what Whoever said said. that is just certifiably insane. Yeah, I believe it was was, uh, Gene. And and, uh, Drew was like, "Um, you... And Mike Mike Schindler are terrible people. And <laughs> I just said you were crazy. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. Yeah. Well, you know, whatever. And then you know, it, I, I'm like, I guess I have to listen to this episode now. You know, I would have well, never known that if it weren't for the Babel conference. And then Matthew yes, Rushing gets on there and he's like, "We're just kidding. No, don't take offense." And I'm like, I cannot no. be offended by people. Um, saying <laughs> that a movie is bad, or by making fun of me for that. Well, something something we touch on on that episode is how uh, it, you can't basically save the long knives for other discussions. Disagree about movies, but don't be uh, nasty about it. And you know, Matthew, he likes to avoid the nasty as much as possible. Yeah, and he said he's like, I, it was all in good fun. Believe me, I respect your opinion. And I said, okay, well, in that case. Um, <laughs> he walked Lost right world. into it. <laughs> and I said, I said, uh, Lost World is better than at least four, maybe five Star Wars movies. <laughs> See, the thing is, this is what I like, is that the Babel Conference is a place to test somebody's <laughs> true convictions about how far they're willing to be pushed. Yeah. And then Matthew's like, you are a terrible person. Drew is right. <laughs> I take back everything nice I said about you. And the lost world is a piece of crap, and so are you. No, he didn't say that. That sounds exactly like him. Really, and you sat back and you went, I broke you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you want if you want to get in on the fun, go to the Babel Conference on Facebook. Just type in the Babel Conference. That's B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and uh click the discussion tab on the menu bar. John, where can people find you on the internet? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Kessel Junkie. Uh, you can find me on another show called Words with Nerds uh, that's on uh, iTunes and whatnot. And uh, actually, I have uh, recently become a regular writer on a, a site called Show Vote, uh, where I'm doing movie and TV reviews. Fantastic. Uh, you can find me right here on Trek FM for another seven weeks doing Standard Orbit with Drew. This week we talked to our good friend John Tenuto about a uh, Star Trek movie that never was, Planet of the Titans. Ah. Or Planet of Titans, if you if you prefer, which sounds like it would have been crazy. It would have been directed by Philip Kaufman and starring Toshiro Mifune as a Klingon, and it would have been amazing, but it never was. So, you know. Only so far you're willing to take the test with uh, with franchises there, I guess. 
Yeah, yeah, but but go go. A great story about like why it didn't get made, why it almost got made, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, so be sure to go over to Standard Orbit and check that out. Uh, you can also find me on um, CommentaryTrackStars.com doing Commentary Trackstar Babies, where we do TV show commentaries. Uh, we got um, some X Files going on this week. Jose Chung's from Outer Space. And, all that good stuff. timing with the new uh, X Files promo that just dropped. Yeah, we we talk about we talk about the new uh, show quite a bit and everything and what our expectations are and all that stuff. So, so yeah, be sure to to head on over there and check that out. You can also find me on Twitter at Mumbles Three K, or you can find the show on Twitter at ComTrackStars, or you can email us directly at ComTrackStars at Gmail dot com. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, track stars, and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. John, what book do you have for us this week? Well, uh, briefly mentioned uh, while we were talking to Eric is... uh, I decided we'll go with the adaptation of Star Trek Nemesis, written by J.M. Dillard and narrated by Boyd Gaines. Uh, in this delightful adaptation, the wedding celebration for Will Riker and Deanna Troy is interrupted when Captain Picard and crew are called to Romulus for an emergency diplomatic mission. They face a threat that could lead to the destruction of the planet Earth, and Picard comes face to face with a man who may prove to be his most dangerous adversary yet, and a surprisingly personal nemesis see what so they did there out. yeah 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 you want to talk about uh star, star trek movies that uh i'd like to hear the the production history of their i mean the, that their mm-hmm. nemesis there right there i want to hear all about what happened behind the scenes on that i want to i yeah. want to talk to the script supervisor of that movie Uh, But yeah, um, as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audio book of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and the network. All right, so that's a wrap for Season 6. We've got one more season left of Commentary trek stars uh 26 episodes just like star trek you know this has been the plan from the beginning and we have a a design for season seven and we are going to be doing something which uh i think we think is pretty cool and we're going to be looking at all of the creators who are working on the newest star trek adventure star trek beyond Mm -hmm. and uh See see what, what the people who are now responsible for Star Trek have done in the past and, and what we can expect in some way or another uh, from Star Trek's future. So we're going to kick it off in, in, a, in a big bad way with a series on Simon Pegg looking at his work as a writer. <laughs> 